Pat and I were gone for two weeks. If you've shown up the last three Sundays, you're wondering who this stranger is or who's the next guy in the, ro the ro rotation. I'm Garen, who God has who called to step into this place of pastoring at 12th. So if you're kind of new, um, that's who I am. I wanna, I'm thankful to Peck and Jason and Brent for all coming and sharing the word of God the last three weeks for doing that for me. I'm glad you guys have got to, if you don't know Peck, he has a long history with this church. I'm glad he was here. I'm glad David um, was here earlier because they both, they're in the kind of the, the headquarters up in Topeka and I really love and respect those guys and I appreciate them coming and sharing the word. Um, we had a great time in Colorado visiting some missionaries. Um, uh, who knew what Russ and about, we spent a day with them and we were gonna do, have any of you done the Cog Railroad to the top of Pikes Peak? Have any of you ever done that? Um, at least one has, I see a couple of yeses. We were gonna do that and right before we were to get on, they told us due to a mechanical failure that, uh, um, that ours wasn't gonna go and we would get a full refund and everybody was like, you know, oh, and leaving and Pat's like, well, I'm glad they found that. I'd rather that mechanical, they found that ahead of time instead of, and Pat hates heights. She hates driving on mountain roads that are treacherous. I really don't like heights. I'm fine walking on a mountain with my feet if I get to, on too narrow of a road with huge drops. I don't really like it, but Russ and Ed are like, hey, we can always drive it, and so we decided to drive it. Pat hates that, so the only, the guarantee, she said, the promise was as she sat in the back with Edda, they had a conversation focused inward to where Pat didn't look out the window. And who knew in July that rain came, I mean, rain's normal, but two-thirds of the way up, the rain turned to sleet and to snow, and the road ended up getting covered. And, uh, you know, I, driving on those, like I said, I'd rather hike one with my feet than drive on one, especially when it's narrow and you don't know what the other driver's like around you. Uh, I would never have chosen to driven that in the winter, much less in wintery conditions. But we made it, and as soon as we got up there, lightning started striking. I mean, hit the building right as we got there, so they had to evacuate and everybody had to go down. But We've done it, and it was cloudy, so Pat couldn't see anything, so she, at least I got Pat, and my full family's been on a 14er now. It's the only way I'm ever getting Pat up there again, so uh, I'll never, but we had a really good time. It was just great to be in God's nature, to be refreshed, to sit by uh, Katie Steinman, her family, the creek, and pray and be in the word, and just be in God's creation. It was really good. Glad to be back. Um, I really want to reinforce the, the thing that Jordan talked about I'm kind of switching gears. That we're, we're re-upping in community. Um, you know, reading through Acts, it struck me again. I think four different times it talked about that the early church, they met in the temple regularly in a very large group, and they met in homes. So God has always minted that his community, that we meet big. That's Sunday morning, but big is not enough because I can't. Sh we can't share our pains, our struggles in here, that we're meant to be in smaller community. And so we're, we're, again, we're challenging people. If you're not in a small group of some kind, that we're giving you a chance to, to, to jump into that. Um, it's on the app and the stuff that, that um, Jordan talked about. If you're in a triad going through the New Testament with us, keep that your priority till we finish this year. Um, don't feel like you have to pile on other small groups. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. So hang in there with the New Testament. Um, thing. Okay, before I jump in today, we're in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and then I'll tell you why I picked to do a big chunk. Um, before I left, I preached on God's will from Acts chapter 16, and how Paul 
in direct, how God in directing Paul, he triangulated and he used the convergence of multiple factors to point him in a direction on a really big decision, right? And if you remember, I talked about, if you were here, that God created us. He wants us to be wise decision makers in most of our decisions, that I know his word and I make wise decisions and I honor him in that. That sometimes in the big things, if, I'm, if God has an opinion that I think the way he tends to direct is he will use a convergence of multiple things to point in one direction so I don't just have to rely on one thing like, well, I feel like. So if you weren't here, you might want to go back and listen to that. Um, I do want to do a very brief follow-up. I'm curious, how many of you were here when I did the will of God, the Acts 16, and the whole idea of triangulation and convergence? So two of us, three, just a few. Okay, I don't want to, I don't hope I'm not leaving you out, and I am making sure this is turned on. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I didn't turn it on for service, so that's why it didn't work. You know, that's when I worked at Radio Shack. People call them, they buy a whole stereo system, they call them like, the stereo doesn't work. And the first thing we were always told to say was, number one, did you plug it in? You wouldn't believe how many people don't plug it in. And then when they plug it in, we'll say, and did you turn the power on? And be like, oh, the power, right. That's like 90% of the time. So it's the same with this, right, Charles? Okay. If you remember, Paul was wanting to take the, mission, the good news in Asia, and two different times the Holy, he was moving in a direction. Two times the Holy Spirit stopped him and told him no. We are not told how God told him no. And you remember I kind of speculated because the week before I preached that, Mel and I went hiking in the tall grass prairie and we encountered this fellow on the road and I thought, maybe God used a bison. That's how he told, that, that's how he told Paul no. Um, just kind of being funny, right? And then I, it hit me on our vacation. There's another way God may have told them no. Pat and I, the first day we're driving through western Kansas, we went to see, it's either called New Jerusalem or Little Jerusalem, an amazing chalk formation out there that just became a state park about a year ago. It's really beautiful. And I think I know another way God may have told Paul no. We pulled up at the little kiosk where you put, it's a state park, you put $5 in an envelope and stick it in. You know, it's an honor system thing, and then you go in the park. So I, I, pulled, I pulled up to it, and I, I said, Pat, here's five bucks, would you go put that in there? And Pat... She opened the door, she stepped out, and right after she stepped out, she lunged back in, and I thought there must be something out there, and there was, there was a rattlesnake. She stepped out like two feet from that rattlesnake. He immediately coiled, she got back in, um, there he is, kind of an adolescent, but I thought that might be another way that God said no, a rattlesnake on the path, right? Okay, just because I'm Garen and this is my personality, uh, the week I preached that, I was talking to my son in Pendleton, and he knew what I talked about, and he was so disappointed in me. He had heard it, and he said, Dad, you missed the most important way that God may have told Paul no. And he said, I can't believe it, Dad. You're a Lord of the Rings fan, right? And so he said, I needed to show this to you guys. So this is from Kieran. famous you shall not pass that maybe maybe Gandalf showed up okay I don't know all right all of that is a light way to lead into kind of a I don't know that it's a heavy topic but kind of a deep topic we are going to be in Romans 9 10 and 11 Winston Churchill once famously said of Russia that she was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma and to me, for years, Romans 9, 10, and 11 was that. It was a riddle and a mystery and enigma. I had a hard time understanding what was going on. And some of the toughest, Pat, to me, this is one of the toughest texts in the whole New Testament, especially chapter 9, verses 10 to 23. Some of the most 
perplexing, mysterious, confusing things are in chapter 9 especially. And over the years, I've been, I was asked a lot by seekers, international students who were seeking, who would encounter this, like, what is that about? I've been asked by a lot of believers, what's going on here, especially in chapter 9? And I want to tell you, the first time I read chapter 9 and some of the verses we're going to look at, it really was confusing to me. I was new to the faith, and I read this, and it's kind of talking about, it sounds like God is choosing people to be saved and choosing others not to be saved. And I was reading that stuff, and I'm, I was like, you know what? I came to know Jesus, and my parents at that time were very much against the faith. I saw no chance of them knowing Jesus, and I'm like, is this telling me that God picked me to be saved, but he picked my parents to go to hell? Because I thought, you know, if that's the case, I'm not very interested in that kind of a God. And it was just something that ate at me for a long time, and I just preferred to focus on things I understood. But it was a thing, like I said, that for a long time kind of was a pebble in my shoe. Um... And I'm going to tell you, it is very common for people to read these verses, especially in chapter 9, and to use them to talk about election or predestination of individuals to salvation. And, but I want to tell you, there are three problems with that. And I'm going to, today we're going to walk through the text, and I'm going to tell you why. The first problem is this. Is that number one is that we, being Westerners, we're a very individualistic society. We tend to read the Bible individualistically. The scripture was written in a group-oriented culture. They tend to read and think of things on a group level. We think of things individualistically. I could take you through a lot of the New Testament. In the Greek, you can tell the difference between a singular you and a plural you, like you, you know, you. It's very clear. But in English, it's not clear. Because in English, you is singular and you, Y-O-U, is plural, right? And there are many, many times in the New Testament that in Paul's writing, plural you, but when we read it, do you know how we read it? We read it as singular you. That's about me. But what Paul is saying, this is about the community because we're an individualistic culture. So whenever somebody's taking this text, um, part of the problem with taking this text and saying it's about God selecting individuals um, to salvation is they're reading it individualistically and Romans 9, 10, and 11, this will be clear in a minute, it is not about individual things, it is about nations, it's about big ethnic groups. Paul is not talking about individual salvation in this text. The second problem with using this text um, as talking about God choosing individuals to salvation is the fact that, again, this I, I'm not sure where this comes from, but you, you become a follower of Jesus for a long time. I didn't even know there was such a thing as predestination, never even heard of it, election. And then when you hear about it, the way we talk about election, when you see it in scriptures, we always read it through the lens of an individual being chosen for salvation. That's how we look at election language. But I want you to know that in the Old Testament, that's not how election language is used. In the Old Testament, when it speaks of an elect group it's a group not individuals and it's that God elected he chose a nation not for those individuals to be saved but he chose a nation to be on a mission for Messiah to come to reach all nations so in the Old Testament election is of God chose a group to be on a mission election in the Old Testament was never about the choosing of individuals and salvation but we tend to read it that way when we see that word that's what we think and the whole point of 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is about nations and about Israel and his choosing of a nation to be on a mission. That's kind of the whole point. The third thing that I would say um, of why it's a problem to take these texts, this, these verses, and make them about individual election is when people do that, 
they tend to just pull out some verses from Romans 9, and at the end I want to address a few of them, and they just pull them out of context, and they ignore what 9, 10, and 11 is about, and this is really about, it's a big thing, and again, it's really about the nation of Israel, and it's about Gentiles as an ethnic group. He's not dealing with individuals. If I were to show you Romans, you know, I like to give out diagrams. It's helpful for me when I read scripture to know the point of the book and where I'm at in it. And Romans is all about the gospel. And in the first part of Romans, the teaching is chapters 1 to 11. The practical is 12 to 16. With, I'm, forget the introduction, conclusion stuff. But in the, what Paul's talking about is the gospel. And in chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3, he's talking about the whole thing that individuals, all individuals, we all sin, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. It's that we all are sinners. That's the first three chapters of Romans. The last half of Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, is about salvation, that the way to get back into a right relationship with God, to have my sin taken care of, is by putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the atonement for my sin as an individual. That's how I'm saved. Then Romans 5, 6, and 7 uh, no, that five is part of salvation. Six, seven, and eight is about sanctification. How God has set me free from the power of sin and that by the, po the power of the Holy Spirit, I can live a life glorifying him and giving my life to him and actually letting, offering my members to him for righteousness. That's kind of Romans 6 language. But that's about sanctification. So he's been talking about individual salvation. When he gets to chapter nine, before he gets to the practical, Paul wants to talk about something that's on his heart. He's like, I've been talking about individual salvation. I want to talk, and for three chapters, I want to talk about the nation of Israel. Why has Israel not responded to their own Messiah? And so he shifts from talking about individual salvation to talking about the nation of Israel. So that's kind of what's going on. He's talking about big ethnic groups. So in light of that, I want to share with you up on the screen first, I want to share with you the structure of Romans 9 10, and 11. A lot of commentators talk about this, that not Romans 9, 10, and 11, and this is why I printed it, it's what's called a chiasmus. That, that doesn't matter, but I would like you to say the word. Can you say the word chiasmus? Okay. And Jewish people wrote this way, they argued this way all the time. I can show you a lot of places in the, New in the Old, I can show you in the New, where Jesus talks in this form, Paul talks in this form, and what a chiasmus basically does is they'll have a first section, the first thing they say and the last thing they say are the same topic, similar vocabulary, and they match, the same theme. And then they move in, that second section is counterbalanced by the second to the last section, a lot of similar vocabulary, the same theme. And then they'll go in a little, then in the more, you're getting to the center of it, that third section, Paul will say some things, he's saying kind of the same thing in section, in the, the counterbalance of that, in that last. And when Jewish people write this way, so those, those parallel balancing sections are important in understanding what's going on, but the most important thing is the center of the chiasmus is the most important part. The Jewish people always knew to look at the center. The center was the main message that somebody is communicating. And so we're going to find that we're going to get to the center of this and see what the main thing that Paul was really all about. If I were to show you what this looks like, it's that the presenting issue is Paul is sorrowful over ethnic Israel and the fact that they basically as a whole have rejected their Messiah. Everywhere he goes, everywhere he goes, they give him trouble. There are some who believe, but most of them don't. And so he starts asking the question then, whose fault is it that Israel is in the current state they are? And so that next section is, is it God's fault? And he's going to talk about two reasons. It is not God's fault 
for where Israel is then and even still to this day. And then he's going to ask, if it's not God's fault, then whose fault is it? And then that, that next section, the C, is he'll talk about that it's actually Israel's fault, and he'll give two reasons for that. And then he's going to come to the middle, middle where he's going to talk about that salvation is available for all. So really, when you're reading Romans 9, 10, and 11, ultimately it is the question of Israel. That's the question. What has happened to ethnic Israel? Why did they not accept their own Messiah? Why hasn't Israel believed in him? Is God done with ethnic Israel? Because so many of them have rejected. Like everywhere Paul goes, they just give him trouble. Is he done with them? What will ultimately happen to ethnic Israel? That's the things that's on the heart of Paul. And not just Paul, but the Roman Christians. There were Jewish people who had converted, who were in this church. And they all were burdened for their own ethnic group, the big group. And everybody's asking this question among the believers. So as we read this, we have to keep that in mind. That he is dealing with Israel in particular, and Gentiles is a big group um, in, in as, as a whole. So, all right, before I jump in, two things. Number one, trust me, I come to this with a lot of humility. Uh, you know, I preached on the Holy Spirit, on prayer, on the will of God, now Romans 9 to 11. Um, this is kind of a daunting task, and I don't believe I have all the answers. There's still things in here, little parts of this, little trees in this forest. I'm like, Paul, what does that sentence mean? Um, but I do really believe that I think I've got a good s- sense of the overall thing. But I just want to encha- challenge all of you. I love Acts 17.11. I think we all should be Bereans. In Acts 17.11, Paul says this, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness. So hopefully you received the word of God this morning with great eagerness. But the other thing they did is they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And I just, we need to be that kind of community. Just because what I say today, I say, if this is a topic you're interested in, you dig into it and you study it. Um, the other thing I want to say is, is I hope you guys brought lunch because this is a long text. I only heard a few. They were all nervous laughter. Um, we're not going to read this whole text. I'm going to do a flyover of it. Um, you can use your Bible. It's going to be hard to follow what I'm doing. So I really encourage you, if you've got this, this is what I'm going to reference to. We're going to look at different parts of it. Um, so I think it's time to jump in. So here's the intro, A1. And these, these bold, this is, these are words that I've written with some, somebody that's influenced me a lot. Uh, and I cannot remember his name. I would give him kudos, um. So this bold at the beginning, this is just summary words. So the intro, Paul's great sorrow and lament over Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. And if you've ever come to faith and been the first one in your family to know Jesus, you know this anguish of people that you care about longing for them to know Jesus. And that's what he's saying. I'm in anguish over that. Drop down on the same page to chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So Paul's longing so much for the people of Israel to know him. Um, and he, he's, he's in agony over this. But the question is, is why has Israel just outright, as a whole, rejected the Messiah? How did they miss him? How are they rejecting him? They were God's chosen people for a mission. 
and they're the ones that totally missed him. And so it's like, what happened? Is it God's fault? Did he fail Israel? Has he just rejected Israel? And we're going to see Paul's answer is no, that it's not God's fault for two reasons. And the reasons are in B1 and B2. So the first reason he does, is it God's fault? The answer is no. God has not failed Israel. And the reason is, is God was never under obligation to save every individual Israelite. It was never a choosing for salvation. He chose that nation for a mission. It was never that every Israelite would automatically become a Christian, you know, or saved or whatever. That was never, that was never the point. Um, look at verse 6 under this B1. It, it, is, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Go down to verse 27 of chapter 9 on that same side of the page. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So he's like, I was never bound to save all of those people. That was never the point of that nation. In Romans 2, 28 to 29, he said something a little bit similar about this. That a person's not a Jew who's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. So he's like, that was never the point, is that all of Israel had to automatically be saved. And the sad thing is that Paul knew is that by the time Jesus came, Israel had totally forgotten and neglected their mission to the nations and had come to believe that as his chosen people, they were the only ones who would be saved. And that all the Gentiles were doomed to not be saved. And they had, they had given up on the mission of God. And again, by the time of Jesus, what most Jews believed is, is, I'm born as an Israelite, therefore I will have eternal life in the age to come. As long as I don't violate Torah, I'm in. Because I'm in the chosen group and we're chosen to salvation. And Paul's saying that was never the point. God never promised that those individuals in Israel will be saved. So it, what's happened to them is not his fault. Then go to B2. Well, the question is, well, then maybe God, because they've rejected the Messiah, he's totally rejected them and thrown them off. And he says, well, no, it's not God's fault with that. God has not rejected Israel. Because individual members of ethnic Israel have come to faith in Jesus. Look at chapter 11, look at verse 1. He asked, I asked them, did God reject his people? And he says, by no means. I am an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And his implication is, I came to faith in Jesus. So did he just to take that whole group and throw them away and reject them? He's like, no, because I came to know Jesus as Messiah. Look at verse 11 uh, in chapter 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And he says, not at all, not at all. Paul had come to faith in Jesus. If you remember when we read Acts, I think in the last chapter when he's in Rome, he went to the synagogue and it says there were people, though most rejected him, there were some who believed. Some of the Roman believers, the believers in Rome, a lot are Gentiles, a lot of them are Jews. So people had come, Jews had come to faith. So he's like, this isn't God's fault, Israel's current state. So then the question is, then what has happened to Israel, their current situation? Um, is it their fault? And Paul answers basically yes to that question for two reasons. And this is what C1 and C2 are about. So look at C1. Is it is, again, this is not scripture, okay? This is a summary written by a human who is uh, fault, you know, not perfect. Is it Israel's fault? Yes, Israel failed to seek righteousness by faith. Verse, look at verse 31. The people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness 
have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. Drop down a few sentences, chapter 10, verse 3. They did not know the righteousness of God, and they sought to establish their own. And he's like, do you want to know whose fault their condition? They were seeking righteousness through their works. And because of that, they missed the message of a Messiah who was coming and that you're saved through faith in him. And then if you go over to C2, is it Israel's fault? He would say, yes, Israel's failed to believe. As a whole, they have failed to believe. That's how he starts out verse 16. Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Not all accepted it. Verse 18, I asked, did they not hear? And he says, of course they did. Everywhere he goes, he goes to the synagogue first. They have heard the good news of Jesus, but they continually, as a whole, they're rejecting it. So Israel's situation, if you ask, what's the problem? He would say they were seeking a righteousness by works, and they refused to put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, and that's the reason that Israel is in this place right now of, as a whole of rejecting him and of constantly fighting against us. So it's not God's fault, it's their fault. And again, this C2 to me is so significant because it's like, well, has, 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 I mean the B2, like, you know, can an Israelite become a believer? And Paul says, well, of course, God hasn't rejected his people, I've become a believer. So an individual Israelite, just because the group has rejected him, they can come to faith. And here's why I tell you that, because that's really important, because that whole thing that even though that group is rejecting him as Messiah, Paul wants to be really clear that any individual, Jew or Gentile, who comes to Jesus by faith will be saved. And that's the center. That's D. That's where Paul is going. It's the most important part. And in the center, what God is saying is this. In all of this, he's talking about Israel as a whole, Gentiles as a whole. This is the one place in 9, 10, and 11 where he comes down and talks about individual level salvation. Okay? Everything else is big things nations, groups. This is the one place he comes down to the individual level. And it's D, God has made salvation possible and it's for all who believe and call on him, whether Jew or Gentile. I'm not gonna read this whole section. I wanna focus on the center of the center and it's in red. So let's start in verse eight. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all. He richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can we say an amen to that? That when I came to Jesus and I became convicted of my sin, and that when I called on him to save me, his promise is, is to anybody who calls on his name, you will be saved. And so he's talking about these big things of ethnic Israel and of Gentiles and ethic. And he comes down and he says, here's the core of everything. It doesn't matter who you are, what nation you're from. If you see your sin and if you call upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. No exception. No exception. Salvation through Jesus is available to all. And this totally fits with the rest of the New Testament. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter writes this, God is patient with you. He does not want anyone to be lost. He wants 
all people to turn to him. 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4. God our Savior wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We all know John 3, 16. God so loved the chosen. He loved the world, everybody, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that's the structure of Romans 9, 10, 11, and that's what it's about. It's primarily about Israel and the nations and what's God doing with those big groups. That's what's going on here. In the center, he is reaffirming what he's told in, in the first part of Romans, that the gospel's for all individuals. But the whole point of this is about these groups. I just want to take a quick, I just want to take a quick minute because Gentiles and Israelites are in here quite a lot. Um, because through all this, Paul is building, he's really building to God's overall mission of Israel to reach all of the nations. That's what he's building to. And so if you see these little blue lines I threw in here, kind of in the middle, he talks about the Gentiles a little bit in B1. He talks about a little bit in C1. He talks a little bit in C2, and then he gets to B2. And he has this whole section where he talks about the through Israel's rejection of him, that what that did is it, it, it opened the door for Paul to whenever, every time he goes in a synagogue and they're fighting, it opened the door. He's always stepping out and he's like, I'm going to go share this with the, these non-Jewish people. And they were flooding in and listening to it and accepting him. And his, his whole thing is that Israel, even though they failed personally with God, that the mission that God was going to reach all nations was not going to fail. And so he has this strong emphasis on the Gentiles. And that's really verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. You see that, this mystery? Turn to the back of your sheet. The mystery Paul is talking about is in Romans 16 and it's in Ephesians 3. Here's the mystery. So Romans 16, 25. Now to him who's able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery, the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. And what's the mystery, Paul? So that all the Gentiles might come to, to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. The mystery is, is that God's end game was always all nations. That was always his end game. In Ephesians 3, it says this, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as has now been revealed by the, Spirit, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And so all this stuff, what he's talking about is, yes, Israel has rejected, but what that did is their failure to God actually opened the door. God used that to reach all the nations. Isn't that cool? So the Gentiles are really important here. Let me just hit Israel for just a minute. So ultimately, here's the question. I think anytime you read this or you think, what ultimately is going to happen to ethnic Israel? In the end, is he done with them? And the answer is no. And here's why I say that. Look at chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 19. Uh Starting with first. First, Moses says, I will make you, this speaking of Israel, I'll make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. So God's like, okay, you've rejected me. I'm going to make you envious by another nation or nations. Go down to verse 11 of chapter 11. 
He says, again, I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? His answer is no. Ethnic Israel is not beyond recovery. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation's come to the Gentiles. Thank goodness for that, because I'm in that group. It's come to them to make Israel, there's that word again, to make them what? Envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, riches for me, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? He's looking to a future day of their full inclusion. Go down to verse 23. If they, being Israel, do not, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. And I'm sorry, I, you can read about the, the olive tree, but it's like Israel's an olive tree. They refuse to believe. He grafted in Gentiles into it. And he's going to talk about him regrafting Israel back in. So if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, so you Gentiles, if you're cut out of an olive tree that's by wild nature and contrary to nature, if you were grafted into the cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, Israel, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Amen. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Jacob's a way of saying Israel. He will turn godlessness away from Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So all of this is God saying, yes, they've rejected me as a whole. Individuals have come to know me. But what that did is their failure. Actually, I used that to reach the Gentiles. But eventually, someday... Their eyes are going to be opened, and there's going to be this Israel realizing who their Messiah was, and they're going to come back to him. Isn't that good news for them? That's good news for them. So that's what Romans 9 and 11 is about. Um, I didn't go into some of the trees again of this forest, because still some of these trees, I'm not sure what's going on with them. That's what it's about. Um... So before I wrap up, I want to say a few things about some of those pesky, troubling things in chapter 9. On Friday, you read them. And on Friday, your skin might have been, you might have been like, you were curling your toes and you're like, what is this about? And it might have been uncomfortable. I don't know. It was for me the first times I encountered it. But before I hit some of these, I want to remind you of one of the most important principles of interpreting and understanding the Bible, and it's the principle of context. I mean, it's that way in every human relationship. If, I, if you just hear... Like a conversation on a phone from one end, and you know no converse, you have no sense of the context. Maybe that's been a month-long conversation, and you hear one part from one person, you can totally misunderstand what's going on, right? Context is so important. So when we read Romans 9, 10, 11, or when I read some of the things I'm going to show you in here, we have to keep in mind context. The context of the whole Bible, the context of Romans, and the context of what Paul is doing in Romans 9, 10, 11 which is not about God choosing individuals of salvation. It's about him having chosen a nation for a mission, and then they failed him in that, okay? So we have to remember that. So let me hit three. Three. Look at verse 10. I mean, these are un can be uncomfortable. Not only that, I'm not going to read the context of it, but I just violated my principle. But, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as is written. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. 
See, there it is right there. God, even before eternity, he goes like, Mike, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you, but I'm going to hate you and hate you. You're destined for hell. You're destined for heaven. Because look, that's what he did with these two individuals. But there's a couple of problems with that, okay? Number one, I'm not going to say a lot about this, but that, that I loved and I hated is a Jewish idiom. It doesn't mean hate the way we think. You remember Jesus says, if you don't hate your, hate your mother and father and love me, it doesn't mean he wants us to hate them. It's just a contrast of an amount of love. But the main thing I want to say is, how do we tend to read scripture? Do we tend to read individualistically or do we tend to read group? Individualistically. So when I read that, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, what I'm reading is, oh yeah, that individual Jacob, God loved him, but his brother, the individual Esau, God hated. He elected one to salvation, he elected the other to be lost. And there's two, two really big problems with that. Um, and I forgot the first one, if I would look at my notes, but... The problem with that is a couple of things. That God didn't choose Jacob to be saved. He, Jacob is one he chose to be in the line to create the nation of Israel to be on a mission. So this isn't about Jacob's salvation and Esau's not salvation. It's about a mission. But more importantly, this is not Jacob and Esau individuals. This is talking about Israel and the nation of Edom. Paul is quoting Malachi here. And the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, Edom has been attacking Israel. Edom is descended from Esau. They've been attacking Israel, who is frequently as a group called Jacob. And God says, my covenant was that anybody who curses you, I'm going to curse. And Edom, you've been attacking them. And my promise was that I would curse them. And so Edom, you're in big trouble. So this is not about individuals. This is about something happening on nations. Does that make sense? And that's the whole theme of 9, 10, 11. It's about nations. It's not about individuals. The next one's a little more sticky, I think, verses 16 to 18. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And people read that and say, do you see what happened? God, before eternity, he said... Uh, you're going to heaven and you get my mercy. And you're going to heaven, you get my mercy. You are going to hell and I'm going to harden you so you won't accept. And you're going to hell and I'm going to harden you. I'm going to give mercy to you and you're going to go to heaven. But you, no mercy, I'm going to harden you so you go to hell. But people, again, read it this way. But we've got to go to the larger context because Paul is talking about the story of the nation of Israel and the Exodus. He's talking big picture. But I want to show you, you would have to go back to Exodus and the truth of the matter is, if I were to show it to you, is this. I think it's seven, one, two, three, I think. The first six times God did a miracle, guess who hardened Pharaoh's heart? He hardened his own. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he hardened his heart, and he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart against God, he hardened his heart against God, he hardened his heart against God. And then God stepped in the seventh time and said, you want to go that way? I'll join you in that, and I'm going to harden your heart. And then Pharaoh hardened his heart again. And then God ended it by hardening his heart. You can read this in Romans and think, God from the very beginning decided that Pharaoh was going to have a hardened heart and he was going to do it. But the reality is, is Pharaoh was hardening his heart all along. And God said, you want to go there? I'm going to help you. And this is totally consistent with Romans chapter 1. With Romans chapter 1 verses 24, 26, and 28 where it says this about God and sinners is that when I pursue a path away from him, he says he will then give me over to that. Three times, I will give you over to that. 
And it's the idea of, uh, the Greek word is like letting go of reins on a horse. You've got a horse, you're trying to go left, and he keeps wanting to go right, and eventually the rider's like, you want to go right? I've been impeding you from going right. I'm letting go of the reins, and now you can really go right. The point of that, we learn later, I can show you other scripture, is that people will then experience the death of that and come back. But it wasn't that God decided before creation to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had done it time and time and time again, and God's just like, I'm going to let the reins go. You want to go there? You're really going to go there. Let's see where that goes. Okay, the final one. Verses 14, 15, and then 16. 14, 15, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And we just read in 18, I'll have mercy on, he has mercy on whom he wants, hardens whom he wants. And again, people will apply this to individual salvation and election. And I want to tell you, this is so beautiful because that's not the point. In B1, the word mercy only occurs in two parts of this whole thing, in B1 and in B2. Six times the word mercy is in B1, four times it's in B2. So God in B1 says, I'll have mercy on who I want to have mercy. So can we look at the context of the whole, and would you read with me in chapter 11, verses, we're going to start in verse 30. So, okay, God, you are going to have mercy on who you want to have mercy. Let's see what he has to say about that. So verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, you've now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So that they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them. What is his desire? To have mercy on them all, on some, on a few, on the ones he picks. His desire is to have mercy on them all, to have mercy on them all. And this word mercy is so important in Romans. And so he is now ending chapter 11, all of his teaching. He's going to go into the practical. And this God who wants to have mercy on all, who will save anyone who calls out to him, this God, he says in Romans 12, 1, therefore, based upon the mercies of God, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him. Because he shows mercy on all, and therefore, we should offer our lives to him. So here is what I, uh, my plea to you. Please be careful in pulling individual verses out of Romans 9, 10, and 11 out of their context and making them about individual election of individuals of salvation because that is not the point of Romans 9, 10, 11. So please, let's not take text from here to do that. Um, let me wrap up with this. So you might legitimately ask, so Garen, where does 12th Avenue stand on this issue of divine sovereignty and human freedom? Uh, I mean, here's... Here's Harrison. Harrison reminds me of myself long ago. Like, maybe he's like, I haven't even heard of any of this stuff. I don't know. First time I heard it, I'm like, what is all this? Here's what I want to tell you is, is where Al stood on this is where I stand. I guess it's where the church stands as a whole, though everybody here is free on that continuum of divine sovereignty, human freedom. You're free under God to come to your own conviction on that. But I believe, because I've, I've been on both sides I believe divine sovereignty and human free will are both taught in Scripture. God is sovereign in my thinking in a macro way. God has an overarching story and plan that will happen, and nobody can thwart that. I don't think God is sovereign in a micromanaging way. Um, and I believe humans are genuinely free to choose. 
And to me, it's not either or, it's both and. I can't explain it, but that's where I'm at. I live in a tension of some things that I can't understand, but I trust God with it. Um, Steve Sheff, you remember Steve, first year here, talking about this topic, gave an illustration that deeply impacted me that I remember this day. And this is where I stand, and this is probably, I would say, just 12th as generally stand, I guess. Um, he told the story of a boy who lived on a farm, and he went into the barn one day, and hanging out of the barn, there, were, there was two holes and two ropes coming down. And being a boy, he jumped up and grabbed the rope on the right side, and when he did, the rope collapsed, and he fell to the ground and hurt himself. And he went to his dad, and, you know, his dad said, whatever. You know, that's what dad say, right? <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Shows what kind of dad I am. <laughs> Well, the next day, the boy went back in, and the two ropes were there again. He thought, well, the right one didn't work well, so he jumped and grabbed the left rope, jumped up, put all his weight on it, and he fell and collapsed and hurt himself again. So he went back to his dad, and he said, Dad, I don't understand. If I jump and grab the right rope, I, it falls. If I jump the left rope, it falls. What's going on? And his dad said, there's something you don't see. Let me show you. And he took him to the upper part of the barn. And when he got up there, there was a pulley, and the boy realized that it was really one rope. And that when he just grabbed on the right side, that he would fall. And if he grabbed on the left, that he would fall. And his dad said, the key is if you don't want to fall is you jump up and you grab both as strong as you can, and they will hold you. And that's where I'm at with the sovereignty of God and human freedom. I don't understand all of that. I hold on to him with all my life and strength. It's a tension that I won't understand until someday I'm heaven. I'm like, how do those two things work? And he'll like, it, it was just one thing. You just couldn't see it. So that's kind of where we are. So. But I can't end here because all of this is about God's mission to reach the nations through Israel, okay? And that's why after talking about all this and Israel's rejection and then he realizes that Israel one day will, their eyes will be open, the Gentiles will have known him, Israel will come back to him, that Paul then, his sorrow in the very beginning, in the end turns to praise. And I want you to read that with me. I really want you to read this with me. It's the very end, Acts eleven thirty three to 36. And please, when we read this, you don't have to stand on this one. When we read this, please don't, let's not read it like this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I mean, let's like put some energy into it, okay? Because Paul's ending in praise for what God is doing among all nations and will do with Israel. So read with me in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. And God's people end that by saying, amen. This all should bring me to praise before him for his wonderful plan. So Father, thank you for this text. It is so hard. But, I, but the, the fact that what you're doing is you're showing us of your desire through Israel to reach all nations. And that though they rejected you, you still use that rejection to bring us into your family. And that one day the scales will fall off of their eyes and they will have this awakening and come to you as their Messiah. So we want to praise you for your sovereign goodness for this plan that nobody could have ever figured out. We want to give you praise. Amen. I'm reading from Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever.
Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord, and your all your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who bow down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at a proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Please stand together to praise God and sing.
Uh, God is great, and Garen is long. Okay, I'm back. Sorry. This text was too important to ignore, in my opinion, so you guys were very patient today. I'm working really hard at being a little more timely, so come back next week. We'll be better at it, but the fact is God's on a mission, and we're called to be on a mission. So 12th, like every week, you are sent.